Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And as, we're, as we are beginning this morning, I'm curious how many of you have seen the show Hoarders? Probably a few of you. Maybe some of you sort of are creepily obsessed with it like me and you kind of want to stop watching it but can't. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in the home of an actual hoarder. Uh, when, when my wife Amanda and I lived in Mesquite, we lived next to a guy who was a hoarder, which I didn't know for a while because we'd always only like talk outside, you know, as we, one of us or the other was leaving or going into our homes. Or, uh, but I got to go in there a couple of times, and when you go in, you know, his house had the same floor plan as ours. And so when I was standing in the living room, like I knew that, you know, over there, there's like a whole nother room because that's how our house was set up, but you couldn't see it. Like it was completely filled with boxes of, I don't know, stuff, but boxes. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't even enter the room. In fact, there really wasn't anywhere even to sit in his living room except for his chair where he sat. And then, you know, when I was over there just kind of like hanging out, trying to stand cool, like in the living room, because it was so full of stuff you couldn't, couldn't move in his house. And if you know anything about hoarding, you know that there is a sort of psychological uh, attachment that becomes really unhealthy to this stuff. Hoarders, hoarders are convinced that they need all of the things that they're hoarding. That's why they can't get rid of them. That's why even if like friends or family try to come in and help them clear out the clutter, they fight tooth and nail to hold on to these things that to everyone else are pretty clearly just junk, but, but it's, it's filled their lives in a way that actually becomes dis, uh, debilitating for them to be able to um, invite people into their spaces or host in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, now, I am not a hoarder, but if I'm being honest, I'm a little bit of a clutter bug. And I learned this about myself. Uh, I learned this about myself when I was uh, move- so in my 20s when I was in like college and grad school and all that. It was, I, I played that you know, moving every year kind of game where you, roommates change and shift around and all of that. And so you're kind of constantly bouncing from uh, apartment to apartment. And I remember this one time I was, I was getting ready to move. And I, uh, I opened my closet, and I was, you know, just collecting stuff, putting it in boxes, the, the thing that you're always doing as you're getting ready to move. And I excavated from the back of my closet these two big packed boxes. And I was like, what are these? Like, they were clearly mine. I recognized my handwriting on them, but I realized they had been sitting back there since, since I had moved in. And so I, I hurriedly pulled them out into the middle of the floor, and I opened them, and they were filled with a treasure trove of knickknacks, of things that I had saved. I don't know, maybe thank you cards or little like just trink, two entire giant boxes filled with these beauties. And as I was like digging through them and feeling that joy of rediscovering lost treasure, it occurred to me that I didn't even remember that I had owned any of this stuff. Like it wasn't like I had spent the last year going, now where was that box of junk, right? I mean, they, I literally had passed from my mind until I pulled these boxes out. And I had this sort of like come to Jesus moment where I thought, I, I might have a problem, <laughs> right? And so I immediately closed up those two boxes. I took them down to the dumpster and, and threw them away. And I, maybe I should have taken them to Goodwill. I don't know because to this day, I can't tell you one thing that was in either of those two boxes. Uh, that was probably a decade ago at least. And I, like, I don't miss any of the things that were in there. They were just junk that was cluttering up my life, literally making it so that I, like, it was taking more effort for me to move. It was taking up space in my closet, in the moving truck. It was, it was, it was just clutter. It was just junk. And when I got rid of it, I actually didn't miss it as much as I thought I would. I had a little bit of anxiety when I was throwing those things away. So this morning, 
because I'm assuming that most of us in here are probably not like hoarder TV show level clutter bugs, right? But I do want to talk about clutter in our lives because I think that a lot of us live our lives in such a way that they become filled often with good things. Uh, our schedules, our finances, we get to the place where we don't have any space, we don't have any margin in our lives. We kind of tend to live at 100% all the time, always going, always doing. And, and that actually, much like in the case of hoarders, it gets us to a place in our lives where we cannot fulfill God's calling in our lives because we don't have any space. We don't have any space even to listen to God, let alone to follow what God has to say to us. So this morning we're going to talk about space. How do we create space in our lives? How does maybe God, in fact, even create space in our lives so that we can do the things that God has called us to do? Uh, and, and so we're going to begin this morning by, by celebrating this God who invites us to live and to flourish, not at 100%, but with margin, with space, uh, to be the people that he called us to be. If you're a guest with us, uh, all that we're going to ask of you today is that you be open to hear from God, because we believe that God has called us here, that God has gathered us here, and that if we will be open, then God will speak to us. So if you're a guest, that's the only thing we would ask, is that as we sing, as we pray together, as we consider what's in the scriptures together, that you would be open and listening to hear from God. So would you stand and would you sing as we begin worshiping together this morning? We are right in the middle of the season of Lent, which is the, the season that the church carves out every year uh, to do some serious reflection on uh, the state of our own spiritual lives. Lent is the season, uh, we've been using the analogy sort of of spring cleaning, which will be particularly appropriate today, right? Where uh, we, we use Lent to, to intentionally look at ourselves and look at our community and say, what are, what are the things that uh, are here that don't belong? And what are the things that maybe are uh, they belong here, but they've kind of gotten out of order. They've gotten in the wrong place. We need to kind of put them back where they, where they should be. And then what are the things that are missing that we really need to add that God has been calling us to, to do that we haven't been? That's, that's what Lent is for. It's a way of preparing ourselves uh, to celebrate Jesus with us, which, is, which is, culminates on Easter Sunday. And so during this particular year, our Lenten series has been called The Devil in the Details. And we're focusing on the fact that when we live our lives kind of at 100 miles an hour, when everything's a blur, we, don't have, we can't spot uh, the small sins. We can't spot the small things that get out of order. And so if we really seriously want to be about that sort of spring cleaning of the soul, we have to slow down. We have to kind of throttle back and, and look for those small things uh, that are, again, where they don't belong or that shouldn't be there in the first place or those holes where we need to add something. That, that's what we're doing this season. And most of the scriptures that we've been looking at uh, have involved the devil in some way. Today's doesn't, but I promise you won't even notice because it's one in which Jesus is particularly wild. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 2. Uh, in John's gospel, this is uh, pretty much the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, he's called a few disciples, and he's done his first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding. And then this is the next thing that happens after he turns water into wine. He goes to Jerusalem, to the capital city. He goes to the temple, uh, which is the center of their religion and their politics and all of that. And uh, he, he causes a scene. This is what theologians sometimes call Jesus' temple tantrum, right? You've probably more often heard it called the cleansing of the temple. Uh, but, but we're going to read this story together uh, because it's, it's, actually, it's actually sort of a troubling story for a lot of us. Uh, it, Jesus seems to be acting very out of character from the, the image of Jesus that we have elsewhere. And so we're going we're gonna to read this story together. We're going to work through the, the passage and try to get at what Jesus was doing uh, when he was cleansing the temple. So we're going to begin in verse 13 of John chapter 2. Here's, here's what John tells us. 
it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. And Jesus made a whip out of some rope, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor, and he turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Okay, again, this is one of those passages that just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of what Jesus does. I mean, he's making a whip. He's driving people out. Like, I, like this is like Schwartz in Christ, right? Like, he's like, rips off his toga. He's like, get out of the temple, get out. Like, he's driving. That's, that's how I like when I read it. I can't help but picture it that way. And again, that just seems so atypical for Jesus, uh, that, that, that really should raise a red flag, right? That he's like flipping over tables and scattering money and whipping, you know, people and stuff. Uh, so, so what's really going on here? And if we keep reading, I think we'll see that this like kind of insane, unhinged Jesus picture that it seems like is, is happening here isn't, isn't really what's going on. It doesn't necessarily help us clarify, but just, just look, I mean, try to imagine that picture, right? And then look at how people respond to him. I mean, you would think that like guards would rush in and arrest him and there would be all like, that, that's kind of what would happen today if someone did that in a church or something, right? right? Like there would, there would be like an armed response. But that's not what happens. Look what happens next. The Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. So what actually happens after Jesus does all of this stuff is a bunch of the religious leaders get together and they say, What's happening here? Right? They, actually are, they actually enter into a dialogue with him. Which, which again should tell us that whatever was happening, whatever Jesus was doing here, it's not, like as, it, it's not as dramatic as we picture it to be. That what Jesus understood himself to be doing and what the people who saw him doing it understood it to be was not some kind of like violent revolutionary move. It was something else. So, so what was he doing? What did Jesus understand himself to be doing? And then especially these religious leaders who like sort of calmly and rationally approached him and said, can you, can you prove that you're from God, right? What did they understand him to be doing? Well, uh, in order to understand that, we, we need to kind of understand the bigger context here. So the Jewish temple had a very specific geographical layout. And it was, it was in, a, think of like concentric circles, sort of. In the very middle was what they called the Holy of Holies, or the holiest place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? The face melt, Nazi face-melting thing from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That was in the Holy of Holies, or the holiest place. And that was where they understood God's physical presence in the world to be. There was one place in the world where God was physically present, not spiritually present like God is everywhere, but like sort of a physical manifestation. of. They called it the Shekinah glory of God. One place in the whole world, and it was in... <clears throat> excuse me, in the middle of the Holy of Holies. That's why they call it the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, because the physical presence of the very creator God was right there. And only one human could ever go into the holiest place, the very high, the high priest of Israel, and he could only do that once a year on what they call the Day of Atonement, one of their holidays, right? So once a year, one human out of all of the humans on the, on the earth could go in, and they understood that there was like a, a chance that he could die when he went in. Like it was very dangerous, Right? as the holiest place. Then right outside of the holiest place was the holy place. So you have the holiest place and then like the holy place. Like it's holy, but it's not like the holiest place. The holy place was where all of the priests could go, 
right? And that was where like the altar and all of the temple furniture was. That was where they would do a lot of the sacrifices and stuff like that was in, in the holy place and inside of the temple, right? Then outside of that was what they called the court of the men. And you can guess who's allowed in there, right? Jewish men were allowed to go in the court of the men. And then outside of that was the court of the women. And Jewish women could go in there. And then outside of that, like the very furthest outer part of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And friends, that's where you and I got to hang out. Unless you're Jewish, right? And then you go in. But if you're a goy like me, then you got to hang out in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was huge, like two football fields put together, right? It's just this massive, enormous space. That was where the court of the Gentiles was. And that's where Jesus was when he cleansed the temple. Now, the, John tells us it's Passover. And Passover was the most holy holiday for the Jewish people. It was sort of like their 4th of July and Christmas kind of like all wrapped up into one big like holiday. It was where they celebrated the Exodus story, their liberation, right? And where they anticipated God's return to liberate them again. A big deal. Jews came from all over the world to celebrate Passover at the temple in Israel, right? It was a big, big, big deal. And one of the ways you celebrated Passover was by offering sacrifices. But if you've ever tried to read through the Bible and gotten stuck in Leviticus, you know that pa- there were like all of these rules about the quality of the animal that was available for sacrifice. And they had to be in peak physical condition. They had to be flawless. And it was relatively unlikely that if you're, you know, in Egypt and you get a lamb on a boat in a crate and sail it across the Mediterranean and get it into Israel, that it's going to make it without any flaws, Right? Uh, And you didn't want to risk that. It was frankly a pretty big investment to buy a whole animal and hope that it arrived safely. So what most of the pilgrims just did was bought an animal when they got there. It was way more reliable, way safer. The other problem is that uh, all, since, since Jerusalem was under Roman control at this time, they had to use Roman coins. And Roman coins had the picture of the Roman Caesar on them. Just like we have our coins have pictures of our presidents on them. Same thing, right? But in the Jewish law, you couldn't bring images of people into the temple. It was considered idolatry, right? So you couldn't actually pay for the animals that they were selling in the temple to do your sacrifices with the Roman coins that you had as a traveler. The temple actually made its own currency that was only used inside the temple, and it had like pictures of wheat and stuff on it, right? So stuff that wasn't considered idolatrous. So if you wanted people to be able to come in and buy the sacrifices so that they could participate in the Passover meal, you had to change the money, Right? It's, just like, it's just like if you fly to another country today, you have to stop in the airport and exchange your currency. Right? So you can like, function in this other country. It was the same thing. If you wanted to do anything in the temple, you had to change your money and get, get better money. Now, here's, here's the thing. If you've ever heard this story, you've probably heard it talked about that, that there was like rampant corruption and like all these people were ripping people off and all this kind of stuff. We don't actually have any evidence for that. Right? It makes for a good story. Right? Jesus, the champion of the oppressed and the downtrodden, like kicking out all of these crooks and thieves from the temple. But like Mm-hmm. There's no real good evidence for that. And again, buying the animals and changing the money, these were necessary parts of the temple sacrificial process. This was how Passover worked. Now, again, there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I mean, again, imagine enough people to pack two football fields worth of space, right? There's lots and lots and lots of people there. So were some people probably ripping people off? Well, yeah, probably. Like, that's you know, you get a group of people big enough together and there's going to be some shady stuff going on, right? That's, that's just how people work. So yeah, there was some of that going on, but it wasn't, again, as far as we know from like historical rec- records, it wasn't like systemic. 
And again, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus was upset about because uh, it's unlikely, really unlikely, that Jesus cleared the whole temple space. Again, two football fields put together, packed full of pilgrims, packed full of merchants, and uh, they don't arrest him, they don't do anything like that. It it, it seems like Jesus is just sort of making a, a little scene. He's just trying to get the attention of the rulers of the temple. He's trying to make a point, right? And that's exactly what he does. He makes a point. He does, this, he does this flipping of the tables and driving out some animals and some stuff like that. And then he gets to sit down with the religious leaders. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make? Well, it seems as though, and we know this from the, the other gospels and from what Jesus says here, it seems as though what he's actually against is the, the institution of the temple itself. What he's saying is it's time for the institution of the temple to come to an end, okay? Not the money changing, not the sacrifices, but the whole thing, like the holy of holies and the holy place and the court of the men and the court of the, like all, it's time for all of it to go. That's what, that's what he's saying. And the religious leaders got that, like they're like message received. They're not saying, could you explain further what you mean? They're saying, can you prove that you're actually from God? Right? And again, this, they're, doing, they're actually following the Bible. Back when Moses was around, he said, if a prophet comes to you and gives you a prophecy that they say is from God, ask for a sign. Ask them to prove it. And then if, if they can give you a sign, great. If they can't, you stone them to death. So like high stakes, right? But that's what they're asking Jesus when they say, when they say can you give us a sign to prove that you're from God? That's, they're just doing what Moses said to do in the Bible. Right? They understand what Jesus is saying. They understand that he's calling for the temple to come to an end. They're just asking for proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's from who he says he's from. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, all right, here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, again, keep in mind, just the outer court of the temple is two football fields. Right? So you can imagine how massive this structure was. And he's like, destroy it. And I'll, I'll build it in three days, which even today would be a technological marvel, let alone in the first century, right? So they, what? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But, here John helps us out, when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believed both in the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So Jesus, in his typical fashion, gives them this very obscure statement that his sign is that if they destroy the temple, he'll raise it again in three days. It's a sign that doesn't make any sense until the resurrection. He's pointing to his resurrection as proof that what he's saying is true. Now, put a pin in that, because we're going to circle back to it here in a minute. But I first want to just dig a little bit further on what's so bad about this temple that it needs to come to an end. Well, the temple, the temple is the place on earth, again, where God's physical presence dwells. And the whole purpose of the temple, if you go all the way back to Moses and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and all, the, you know, all that stuff, the whole purpose of the temple was to provide a space where God and humanity could connect. It was, it was for relationship. That was the core purpose of the temple. It was, it was to, provide, to provide a space in our physical geographical world where we could connect to God, right? Where God's physical presence dwelled among us. If you were here when Debbie preached a few weeks ago and she talked about God coming down off of the mountain, this was that moment when God came down off of the mountain and took up dwelling in the tabernacle, which then was later turned into the temple. It's the same thing. It's relationship. 
But the very act of our connection to God ought to remind us that the goal of that relationship was never just to be between us and God. That when God made a covenant with his people, before he gave them the tabernacle, the terms of that covenant were, if you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will make you into a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. So you don't have one priest for the nation. The entire nation is priests who are to connect the world to God. So the temple was never just supposed to be for Israel. It was never just supposed to be for insiders. The temple was to facilitate the insiders going out into the entire world and bringing all of those non-Jewish people, all of those Gentiles, to God. So every Jewish person was to be like a lighthouse, shining the light of Yahweh into a dark world, showing people that there's life, that there's hope, that there's a different way to live in this world. And they were supposed to be so captivated by this light that they ended up making their way to Jerusalem. That's why they built a giant court of the Gentiles. So that when all these Gentiles showed up, they'd have a place to get close to God. And yet, when Jesus shows up at the court of the Gentiles, there's not room for any Gentiles. It's packed with Jewish people doing good things, right? Facilitating sacrifice, facilitating Passover, good stuff, but it's keeping the temple from achieving its end, which was to connect the world to God. This space that was designed to be the very closest space that people like you and me could ever get to God, it was filled with good stuff, but stuff that was for insiders. And, and we get why they did it, right? I mean, again, are there other places they could have sold the animals and changed the money? Sure. But it was just like real easy to do right there. It was, just, it was more convenient to just do it in the court of the Gentiles because, you know, it's right by the door to the women's court. And I mean, the Gentiles, they'll figure it out, right? Probably if they even show up. And that's what Jesus had a problem with, was that the temple had, lo- the, the temple had lost its way, which really meant that God's people had lost their way. That the space that had been all about their calling to be a light in the world was now kind of just serving them, serving themselves. And so Jesus shows up to clear away the clutter and to announce that something new is happening, that God is no longer going to live only in a temple, but God's going to live in in people. There's going to be this whole new way to relate. That's, That's really what was going on in the temple cleansing. So, We like to imagine, if we're in this story, that we're standing behind Jesus like, yeah, get him. Like, tell him what's up. If you ever notice when Christians fight with each other and if they get a little bit nasty, you're like, whoa, are you sure you should have that tone? They're like, well, I mean, Jesus whipped people. (laughs) So I'm verbally whipping them. I'm trying to be like Jesus, right? Like, we use this as justification when we maybe take it too far, right? Because we like to imagine that we're standing behind Jesus, like we're on his side, like the whip's directed out there. But for these last few moments we have together, I wonder if we could kind of spin the situation around and say, is it possible that there are things in my life that Jesus needs to cleanse? Is it possible that there are things in my life that are maybe even good things, but are occupying too much space? 
Now, there are some things that it's maybe easy to think about, like, yeah, okay, I've probably watched too much Netflix, or I eat out too much, right? Like, I, I probably would have more financial margin if I cooked at home, right? Those are, those, they're, not, they're easy to identify. They're not easy to change, right? But there's also harder stuff, too. Like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm in a, a career that doesn't allow me to have any margin, or maybe I'm in relationships that don't have good boundaries that, that drain and drain and drain and drain me. Or maybe, maybe my family is committed to too much stuff so we're being pulled in too many directions and we don't have any time to just be together. And again, they're good things. Like if you, if you highlighted any one of them in your big list that you make, no one's going to be like, I can't believe you do that and call yourself a Christian. Right? They're not bad things. But when you add them all up, there's just no space. There's no space for you to connect with God. There's no space for you to be the person that God is calling you to be. And so that's, that's the concept I want to leave us with today, is this question about space. Do you have space in your life? Do you have space in your schedule? Do you have space in your finances? You know that God expects us to have like almost 15% of our time free? We call it Sabbath, one out of seven. I don't know, the, it's like 14%, right? What, don't, whatever. Almost 15%. Fine, do 12%. I don't care. Most of us probably aren't even doing that, right? But God actually, like, God created us to live six out of seven at full tilt and then one out of seven space. God expects us to live in such a way that financially we have 10% of our income to free to give, right? Not because God is going broke, right? And heaven needs a remodel. And he's like, oh, maybe if I can get him to give me 10%, that'll cover the cost, right? Not that, God doesn't need that, right? No, because God knows that we are most fully human when we are givers. And so God says, try to live your life in such a way that you have margin. You have space so you can actually be who I created you to be. Because if you're living at 100%, you're not who God created you to be. And I know, I know that that is so counterintuitive because it runs completely against everything our society teaches us. That says, just do more or you don't matter. Just do more and you'll have everything you wanted. Just do more. Our society is mm, not happy with 100%. I know a lot of us that feel like if we're not doing 110%, we're failing. And yet God says, you need space. You need margin, or you, you cannot be who you were created to be. My friends, this is a very difficult message. I know from my own experience. There was a time in my life when I uh, was, was one of those times I was moving, right? And I couldn't find a place that had enough room for all my stuff that I could afford. And it actually took me a while to figure out, maybe the problem is I got too much stuff. Maybe I shouldn't be trying to find a place where I can fit all my stuff, maybe I should be trying to find a place I can afford and live with financial margin, and then I just, you know, put in there what I can put in there, and maybe I just don't need the rest of it. That was a very difficult process for me to go through. We covered that earlier, that I'm a little bit of a pack rat, right? There are times in our, that in, in our marriage that we've had to make some financial decisions so that we have margin, so that we can be generous the way God calls us to be generous, and that's not an easy thing. Right? I don't know anyone who just has like giant piles of money sitting around and they're like, I just don't know what to do with all of this. Right? That's not a thing. 
No, we have to make decisions to create space in our lives. And sometimes that's really hard to do because it means we have to change our lifestyles. We have to change the assumptions we're making about ourselves. We have to change our assumptions about what actually gives us life. That's hard. It's really hard. And yet we have Jesus who shows us how seriously God takes this idea of space. That if we are not being who we were created to be, if we're not doing what we were created to do, he gets angry. Because what God wants for us is to live, to flourish, to be a light in the world, to be a generous people, to be a people who have time. And if we're not that, we're living at less than who we were created to be, and that, that's, that's a great definition of sin. And so as we are kind of closing out today, I want to I give you some space to prayerfully consider what your life looks like, how much margin you have, how much space you have. That's what Lent is all about. All of us, all of us, I'm nearly certain all of us probably have things in our lives that, that maybe need to go. I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you what that is. I'm going to invite you to have some space to pray and prayerfully consider what it looks like for you to create some space. We're going to come to the table this morning. Because this table is what reminds us that in Jesus' resurrection, what he did, what he did by being raised from the dead was he created space for all of us Gentiles, right? All of us Gentiles to approach God, to be indwelt by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's why New Testament writers called the church the temple of God. Because Jesus' resurrection shifted the nature of reality. No longer is God's physical presence on earth confined to one little box in one little spot in the world. God's physical presence on earth is now the church wherever we are gathered to worship. That's where the Spirit of God indwells us and makes us into the body of Christ. The body, the physical presence This table brings us back to the, the meal that Jesus shared with his followers the night before he was killed. When at that meal, he broke bread and gave it to us as his body. He said, take it and eat it. In that same meal, he gave us a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. It's poured out to create space in God for you. Take this and drink it. We approach the table today as God's people, as God's physical presence on the earth, filled by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We leave from here to be sent out into the world. And one of, one of the ways we bear witness to God is by living lives that have space, by demonstrating to the world around us all of those people who are so exhausted by trying to maintain 110% that they're doing way too much. That's a prophetic witness in our culture. It's a good word that people need to hear and need to see in us. So you don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion with us today. If you are willing to allow God to create some space in your life, then you're welcome to come to the table. I'm going to ask you to uh, participate in a prayer of examine with me. This is the space I was telling you about, to give you some space to reflect 
I'm going to ask you some questions and give you some time to think about the week that brought you here, to examine your life, to see what kind of margin, what kind of space you've had, and then think about the week that's ahead of us. And really ask that question, how can I create some space? What needs to be cleansed in me? I thought about handing out whips, but I thought I'd, few of you I don't trust. So, um, yeah, so metaphorical whip. Uh, so here's, here's the first question I want you to consider. Think about the week that brought you here. When in the last week did you have margin? When in the last week would you say you had some space where you didn't have anything to do, you didn't have an agenda, you were just able to uh, exist? Now, when in the last week uh, did you feel that you were at your limit or maybe even past your limit? Were there times you just, again, maybe, maybe emotionally, maybe financially, maybe with regard to your schedule where there's a place where you just really felt like, I don't have any more to give. Now think about the week that is ahead of you. Where, where will you be overtaxed in this next week? Is there a particular, a particular space you know is going to be difficult for you, relationally or financially or, again, just in, in terms of your schedule? Finally, how can you create some space this week? Or maybe again, just in this next month leading us up to Easter. What are some things that you can move around, some things you can say no to that create some space so that you can just hear from God? Or so that you can do that thing that you know is your next right step? Let's pray together. God, you have brought us together this morning so that we might consider uh, our, our own lives, so that we might consider uh, how we have uh, possibly filled our lives with 
good things, but things that keep us from listening for your voice, things that keep us from following you. We have seen how seriously you take this uh, in the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, the, the dramatic steps that, that you're willing to go to to demonstrate to us how important our first calling is. And so we approach your table this morning to be formed yet again as your people. We ask that as we receive these wafers and juice that they become a spiritual food for us. We ask that they nourish our imaginations, that they fill us with uh, a clear vision of how you would have us order our lives so that we have the space to be your people. We have seen this morning this picture of generosity that you have called us to, a generosity of time, a generosity of resources, a generosity of living that is, that is an imitation of you and it is what we celebrate when we come to your table this morning, your generosity that goes up to and includes your very life. We ask that you send us from this place as lights in this world, that all who see us would see you and the joy and the hope that you bring to our lives. We offer these prayers and we approach your table this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. And as you're going, uh, Again, I'm, I'm trusting that many of you in that time that we created, the space that we had, uh, probably sensed what the next step for you is. But I know some of you, too, probably are struggling with, uh, with exactly how to bring it down to earth. And so if that's you, if, you're, if this message about creating some space resonated with you and you're not really sure what to do next, uh, let me challenge you to, to track your margin this week. Just get a legal pad or you know, spreadsheet uh, on your computer, which I know some of your love languages, right? And then just like track what you do every day. Just kind of write down how much time you spend doing it. I know there's apps that you can actually download that tell you how much time you spend on your phone every day, which is frightening, um, but a really good eye-opener to help you see where are some spaces you can create some space. And then just spend a week doing that. Spend a week tracking what you do with your time or what you do with your money or what you do with your relational energy and, and use that as a starting point to say what again, what needs to go, what needs to change around, and maybe what needs to be added. That, that's a, when you can visualize, and I know a lot of us, that really helps. So if you're not really sure what your next step still is, consider doing that. Consider just tracking you, how you use your space this week. And you'll be amazed uh, what you see, how you can begin to live a, a freer life that, that actually is one in which you're flourishing even more because you're living the way God intended you to. So I want to send you this morning with this blessing catalyst as you go. Uh, would you be the people of God in the world? And would you live with space, space to breathe, space to flourish, space that when, so when, that when a weary world sees the joy that you have, they would ask to know this God who has given you that joy. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.